Welcome to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast with your host, Steve Shulwolf. Thanks, Phil. As many of you know, our last few episodes have been somewhat COVID-related, and I've started off thanking healthcare workers, uh, my wife included, and I want to reiterate that. But today, I also want to thank the listeners. Uh, Opening Doors to Resolution has been downloaded now in 23 states and 11 countries, so thank you very much for your support. I've actually just started to get my first feedback, so please, if you listen to an episode and you have an idea of how to uh, improve the, the podcast or an idea for a future episode, by all means, please let me know. Um, we're at Opening Doors to Resolution a Mediation Podcast on anywhere you can find other podcasts, so uh, thank you very much. And I want to say I am so excited about this episode. I took a time out from my personal binge listening to 1865, a great podcast about the aftermath of Abraham Lincoln's assassination. So if you've been able to muddle through some of my podcasts and you enjoy history, I think you might really enjoy that. Now, my next two podcasts will focus on how the legal profession is responding to COVID. Yesterday, I spent 10 hours mediating a divorce matter on Zoom from a different room in the house I'm in right now. I'm happy to say we were able to reach an agreement, so that's a pretty good day for a mediator. And online mediation, I think, will clearly play a role going forward because it does allow people in different locations to more conveniently resolve their disputes. There are obvious some pros and cons with not being in the same room with people you're negotiating with. And as a mediator who strives to create an atmosphere conducive for settlement, that can create a challenge. But I do think that Zoom and online mediation is, is here to stay. But my next two episodes are going to focus more on how courts are struggling to create protocols for remote trials or trials with COVID protocols like masks and social distancing. In episode eight, I'm going to talk with Matt Fisher of Riley Safer Homes in Casilla. Mr. Fisher has a national trial practice and will provide his thoughts on the disparate efforts that courts are experiencing all across the country in attempting to reopen the courtroom. But today, we're talking with Julia Simon Kerr, a professor at the University of Connecticut School of Law, who has taught classes on evidence, civil procedure, and law and lying. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Now, I'm sure you get this a lot, law and li lying. Uh, what, what type of class is that in? And, and for all my friends, I just want to reiterate, I never took the class on lying in law school. Yes. Let me be clear. I'm not teaching the students how to lie, oh. but rather it's, <laughs> it's an upper level seminar where we look at the ways that the law tries to regulate lying and also sometimes doesn't regulate lying. So it, it kind of varies year by year, depending on what's going on, uh, what's interesting out there. But certainly, you know, usually we do talk about impeachment in the courtroom. We talk about actually some um, advertising regulations, truth in advertising kind of thing, you know, kind of, it kind of goes off from there. Sometimes attorney uh, ethics 
as well. Well, sure. Uh, I'm, I've, am uh, going to be presenting a CLE on mediation uh, in a couple weeks, and uh, they asked me to throw in some different ethics. And one of the things that I'm doing is, you know, some examples. What's the difference between mere puffery and misstating uh, something mm-hmm. material uh, during the course of a mediation? So I'm sure that's some of the type of things that you, you talk about. So that that's fascinating. We definitely yeah. didn't have that class uh, when I was there in law school, although we didn't have classes on negotiation and mediation when I was in law school. And I think most uh, law schools now are at least doing a ne- negotiation c- class. Does uh, UConn have that? Yes, we do. Almost every semester now, which is great. Super important. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I wound up really learning it on the fly from... Uh, the first time I wound up representing a client and, and was at a mediation. So I, I have a lot of experience in doing it, but uh, I, I do support the academic effort in, in, in trying to teach it as well. So before we jump into the law, I think I disclosed I was uh, binge listening to uh, the podcast 1865. My wife and I, you know, like everybody, I think in, in COVID have probably binge watched some more, you know, TV as we uh, haven't gone out. Our latest on Netflix is an Icelandic uh, show called Case that we really enjoyed. How uh, how have you been uh, passing your time during these strange days? Yeah, well, I wish I could say I've had time for binge watching, but I have small kids, so actually just doing a lot more childcare than usual, which is, has wonderful upsides and then also downsides, which is my work is is happening at night a lot these days. But I did I did make it to Europe with my husband who's from here. So that's been a really nice part of the summer for us and very lucky. Well, and I appreciate you able to uh, do this uh, remotely. Uh, we obviously had to schedule it based on the time difference. And so it's, it's, it's very much appreciated. So I don't want to paint the image that I was always in front of a, a TV, but uh, I'm in my 50s. My brother is uh, a decade older than I am, and I have fond early recollections of uh, being in the family room watching some bad TV with him. And, uh, you know, he enjoyed some things from the late 50s and, and early 60s, well before your time. I remember Godzilla, the son of Sven Gulli, and Zorro. So if you're not familiar with Zorro, he was a fine swashbuckler and was known as the masked man. Julia, I've named this episode, episode seven, as Zorro. Can we trust that masked man? So, Julia, what do you think? Can we trust somebody who's wearing a mask? <laughs> I think we can. I think we, we have to adapt a little bit to do that, but I, I think it's possible. Well, my brother, who really enjoyed the show and looked up to Zorro, will be very happy to hear that. So, uh, you know, great. (laughs) I know you said you're in Europe. I'm here in Texas. And in June, Chief Judge Barbara Lynn of the Northern District of Texas uh, conducted one of the first jury trials during COVID. And because we're all trying to figure out how that can and should work, her court issued a manual. And just to help other courts try to not reinvent the wheel. And I want to quote a passage from the protocols that the court used. And so they said, everyone in the courtroom wore gloves and a face covering, either a mask or plastic shield. The only exception was the testifying witness. After a witness took the stand, he or she would remove his or her mask for the duration of the testimony. 
This procedure allowed jurors to view the witness's face and help assess his or her credibility. Because the witness was testifying behind plexiglass and was more than six feet from any other person, the risk to participants was minimized. So a lot of work has gone into planning on how we're going to reopen courts and how we're going to permit jurors to assess the credibility of witnesses by removing their masks. And I think this presents a great opportunity to develop procedures that will assist the system in achieving its goal of ascertaining the truth. But so if somebody asked you, Professor, about developing these protocols, what would you say about the importance of making sure that jurors could see unmasked witnesses? First of all, I think the protocols have to be controlled by the medical profession. I would trust. So all of the what's safe and what isn't safe is going to come from them. But in terms of assessing the credibility of a witness, I wrote a, an essay that's going to be coming out in the George Washington Law Review, uh, hopefully later this month of August, kind of saying that this time of mask wearing will allow us to reassess our insistence that we have to see demeanor in order to judge credibility. So in my view, um, at least if you're covering up just the mouth and nose of the witness, it's not going to impair our ability to assess credibility, and it actually might give us a chance to focus on some better clues to whether we want to believe a witness or not. I guess it hasn't been published yet, but somehow I, I, I was able to, to, to read Unmasking Demeanor uh, on the internet, and of course that, that led to uh, you being asked to be a, a guest on the, the podcast. And I, I found it fascinating, and one of the things that I thought was interesting about it was this isn't a new revelation in that there is scientific studies that have consistently supported the idea that as humans, we're just really not as good engaging the meaning of nonverbal cues as we think we are. So how long has that been around and, and why do you think to date it really hasn't impacted our system? Yeah, this research has been around, it's been around for decades since the early 2000s. Um, social scientists have sort of regarded it as a, a closed question that, you know, we're not really good at reading demeanor in order to figure out if somebody is lying or not. We don't really do better than chance. And in particular, people who think they're good at it are actually tend to be worse at it in certain ways. So, I mean, it's a complicated question why it hasn't this kind of scientific awareness and, and research hasn't been recognized in the judicial system. You know, I think there, there are a lot of causes. We're a kind of a conservative profession and, the common law is, is structured to do what we did last time and evolve slowly. But also I think it's just really, it's counterintuitive, right? It goes against the common wisdom that people have been passing down for generations. And it's also hard to find substitutes. You know, well, if we're not great at doing that, then 
what do we do? Um, and that I think is legitimate, but I don't think any of those reasons are, are, are great reasons for not recognizing this in the judicial system. Well, I think part of it, and again, I have not, you know, I read your article and looked at some of the literature that you analyzed, but obviously not nearly as much as, as you did. So I invite anybody who's interested in this topic, uh, once it comes out, to look for uh, unmasking uh, demeanor. You know, one of the things that really struck me was how entrenched it is, not just in the legal system. I mean, it, it clearly is, right? Because this is written into Rule 52 of, you know, the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, right? Um, appellate courts yeah. are not supposed to overturn what the judge or jury found by fact unless there's a clearly erroneous error because of the unique opportunity that the judge or jury has in assessing the credibility of witnesses. So it's this isn't its tradition, and obviously Rule 52 and other aspects of our evidence code is tradition, but it, it, it's, it's not just an oral, it, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the bedrock of, uh, you know, the way we, we do things. And in fact, there's some constitutional issues. You know, I had noted in, in your article that here in Texas, you know, there's case law saying that if a witness has a disguise to protect themselves and that that violates the uh, confrontation clause of the constitution for the for for the defendant merely because of this assumption that the finder of fact is going to have difficulty in ascertaining the veracity of testimony if the witness is masked um that's absolutely correct so the constitution confrontation clause has been interpreted to mean that we have a right to actually see a witness's face in order to assess whether that witness is worthy of belief. That's an element of the conf- of confrontation, according to the U.S. Supreme Court, and then, of course, all the other courts have to follow that. And it's written into the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, the Evidence Code. So it's, yeah, that's absolutely right, that this is an extremely entrenched way of understanding how we evaluate witness credibility. And yeah, I have, I have arguments for why I think that is, is misguided and it actually leads us to care a lot about external features of a witness that aren't necessarily in their control rather than features that might help us evaluate their truthfulness. So part of my broader research is and writing is about the distinction between a witness's credibility and a witness's truthfulness, right? A witness's credibility is sort of external metrics of whether we're going to believe them because we need to make decisions in uncertain situations where we don't know a person. So we rely on external features in those situations to decide if a person has credibility. But a person who has credibility can lie and a person who is lying, uh, who is not lying and is truthful can lack credibility. So they're really two separate things. And the rules are sort of directed at credibility, in my view, rather than at truthfulness. No, I, I think that's fascinating. And, and frankly, the most dangerous people are the ones who are wholly credible but able to lie without, I guess, exhibiting some of the cues that we as a society think 
fit the description of what a liar looks like, right? I mean, don't the rules really, aren't we basically assuming that a judge or juror is able to determine what the meaning of nonverbal cues based, I guess, on what is just a universal way that a liar is going to appear in front of them. And that, I think the studies yeah. demonstrate that that's not true. That's right. So I, we think we can read demeanor and our belief that we can read demeanor is, you know, well, everybody maybe in the U S kind of, I don't want to overgeneralize, but right. There's a cult, there's a strong cultural uh, assumption that, Oh, well I can look at someone and I can see, you know, they have a shifty look about them or they, whatever it is that we believe gives away whether they're lying or not. And there's, yeah, there's, really no research to suggest that we can do that. And it's also a product of culture. So if you go to another country that has a different understanding of this, like for example, in China, the studies find something different, which is that people expect that your demeanor will not match up with your interior. They, they don't believe that they should trust appearances. And that's just a cultural belief in the same way that it's a cultural belief here that, you know, what you see on the surface mirrors something within. And we should understand that, that this is, this is a cultural belief. It's not, it's not necessarily getting us anywhere if we care about actual facts. You know, it's, Maybe not as problematic if we're just going to the mechanic and we're going to decide, does the mechanic look trustworthy? Fair enough that whatever stereotypes about mechanics we have, we're going to use those. But when we're doing it in the legal system and kind of the, the confrontation of clause is saying like external appearance is so important, to me that's a problem because it's, it doesn't actually reflect anything about judging truthfulness. Well, I think your paper talked about a case uh, when uh, Justice uh, Posner was still on the Seventh Circuit, noting that American immigration judges might not be the best suited to assess credibility of foreign witnesses due to cultural differences. And I guess what that assumes is that, well, American jurors could ascertain the credibility of American witnesses. And so if, if I understand kind of what you're saying is, look, he, he's on to something when he's saying that maybe immigration judges really aren't better able to ascertain the credibility of people testifying to them. But instead of pigeonholing that to something that's a relatively narrow band, it really should be thought and expanded based on the science to our entire system. Yeah, that is very well said. I completely agree with that uh, summary. It's true. I think judges have been sort of more able to recognize their limitations in judging credibility when they, it's very clear to them that the person that they, whose credibility they have to assess is from a different culture and that they might not share the cultural cues that the judge is used to, but it's exactly right that once there's no reason that that's limited to people from other cultures. We don't, you know, we have a huge, awesomely heterogeneous 
country and not everybody has the same reactions to being asked questions, to being in a courtroom, to being in front of a judge. Not everyone has the same level of comfort with that. And not everyone has, frankly, the same cultural way of communicating in our country. And so I think it's an insight that might be helpful to extend beyond just cross, like cross a country boundaries, but actually within our own country. You know, there's sort of predictable effects of this, I think, which is people who feel are more of the dominant culture or feel more comfortable in a courtroom are going to come across as, as more credible because they just feel more comfortable, which is not really what we should be caring about in that moment. Well, one of the interesting things I, I referenced that uh, the uh, Northern District of uh, Texas had uh, a jury trial, and they not only published a handbook, but attached to it, they had some questions for the jurors, and they were providing the analysis of that so other courts could uh, consider it. And the notion that this is entrenched in our legal system you know, sometimes we can talk about the legal system as it's as somehow it's separate and apart from society in general. I thought it was interesting. One, at least one, I think maybe multiple jurors did comment that they didn't particularly like that the lawyers were masked because they felt mm. now one, they felt it may have made it more difficult to understand. And I do think that, you know, that's a separate issue. I mean, obviously if somebody had some hearing problems and and relied more on seeing somebody's lips to understand the content of what the person is saying. I, I think that's a, a different situation. But, you know, they also said that they they wanted the lawyers unmasked because they they felt they wanted to see the lawyer's demeanor. So, you know, and these weren't legal scholars and they weren't saying it because they knew what Rule 52 or the Confrontation Clause was. I think it's something, you mentioned it's counterintuitive, so it is something that I think the average person thinks they can do better than they really can. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think this moment where we're trying to figure out how to operate a judicial system given pandemic, it's, it's just a bizarre opportunity in a way to break through those assumptions both in the culture and in the in the to the extent that the legal system reinforces them. You know, I, I think it's it would be really interesting if in instead of kind of saying, oh well witnesses are going to take their masks off, which reinforces that perception of jurors that well unless somebody takes their mask off, I can't evaluate them. So I'm now frustrated that the attorneys are wearing masks. If instead the instructions were we're not very good at assessing credibility or truthfulness based on demeanor. It's more important to listen to the words and that's what you should focus on. And then everybody in the courtroom is wearing a mask. So, and my preference would be that everybody is wearing the same mask. Then I think, you know, it might give those jurors a chance to sort of sit there and, and think about that and, get used to it and realize that actually they can, they can do just fine. They can still see the eyes of the witness 
and they might find themselves focusing more on the words, um, which is what some of the studies have found, the mock juror studies, that when a witness is more covered up, the mock jurors tend to think more about, focus more on the words and maybe look at the eyes more. You know, it's fascinating. In some contexts, we're, we're used to not overly relying on you know, verbal cues. We're, we're doing this over the phone. This is being taped, so I have it on record. I think twice now you've said that I was absolutely correct on something. So, I, you know, I'm going to tell my wife that, you know, later tonight. But, you know, would it have been different if you saw that I was sweating profusely, blinking multiple times, staring away from the person I was, you know, talking to? It wouldn't have changed the substance of what I was saying. Yet, those are the at least stereotypical cues that people look for because culturally we think that that's what somebody who's not telling the truth looks like. And therefore, I think you're right. We start to tune out what they're actually saying if, based on the verbal cues, we've made a determination that they're probably not telling the truth. That's a really good demonstration of what we're talking about, which is that once you see those demeanor-based cues and shifting and all kinds of things, which you would still be able to see with masks, but you start to get distracted by that and to think about that and think, oh, that person looks nervous. You know, maybe I feel nervous. Maybe I don't like what they're saying as much, or maybe I've been led to believe that those are signs of lying themselves. And yeah, you tune out, as you said, you can tune out what they're actually saying. And at least if we believe their research, what they're actually saying is really going to be the best way to decide to get better than chance at figuring out if they're lying or not. Well, and I think that goes to the heart of Rule 52, right? I mean, if if what the witness actually says is the most important, then that's transcribed. And an appellate court has every opportunity to dig into the substance of the testimony as the trial court. So why do we elevate the first, you know, finder of fact above everybody else in assessing whether that testimony was truthful? Right. The reason is that we believe erroneously that the demeanor is going to be very revealing. And so that's absolutely written into Rule 52. I mean, there are some other things that happen because of that. Of course, there are structural changes which, you know, making it harder to review a decision, it gives the trial courts a tool, right? They can write their ruling, focusing on, well, this was a credibility judgment and, you know, it had to do with demeanor to make it more insulated from review. I say, actually, in my essay, you know, that's something this, that deserves to be considered, the, the structural role this rule is, is playing, in, in terms of the power dynamic between the trial court and the courts of appeals. But as a matter of just truthfulness, judging truthfulness, I, I don't think that it makes sense. Uh, it doesn't have any basis in science to think that the trial judge would do a better job because the trial judge can see demeanor. Well, you know, it is fascinating because no matter how many studies are out there, I do think it is counterintuitive. And I've been thinking through my career. Um, I litigated for uh, 26 years, and now I'm exclusively 
acting as a mediator. And so as a litigator, I took hundreds of depositions. And you know, one of the first things you do when you report to your client is assess how well that witness will do at trial. But along those lines, it's do you do you think that person was telling you the truth? And so I know I had a gut reaction when I deposed somebody and I felt that they were lying. And whether it was based on the content of their testimony just was so inconsistent with other facts in the case that they were unlikely telling me the truth, or whether it was the demeanor. And in mediation, what you often get is an attorney telling you, look, you know, you've seen the other side. My client you know, is telling the truth and they're going to look much better at, at trial. And as a mediator, I say, look, it's not my job to determine who is telling the truth. And so I couch things in terms of litigation risk. You know, I think you have a problem because whether your client is telling the truth or not, the other side has an extremely presentable witness. And I think what I'm saying there is the other side, whether they're telling the truth or not, is not going to fall into the stereotype of what a liar looks like and therefore creates a litigation risk for you that the jury is going to find that they're telling the truth and your client isn't. But to me, reading your article made me realize just how ingrained that is to both what I was doing as a litigator and a mediator. And frankly, I do think that some people... I hope, retain me because they think I'm honest and relatively going to give them a neutral and perceptive evaluation, not only of uh, the the legal merits of the case, but how the case might be presented to a finder of fact. Yes, I think you're, you're starting to point out some of the externalities of all of this, which is that because this is the way credibility is understood in the courtroom, it radiates out. So if, you know, it's going to affect settlement negotiations and how the attorney thinks about the strength of their client's case and, you know, the other side's perception of, you know, well, that's going to, that guy's going to be a terrible witness and come across as totally untruthful. So I don't have to worry as much or whatever it is. So this is not just, it doesn't just create this emphasis in the courtroom, but it, you know, affects everything that happens outside. And then as you, you know, best, right. It it can also work its way into the mediation process. And then of course, hiring decisions, right. So I, I'm not saying we need to change our entire way that our culture operates and that we make decisions in conditions of uncertainty about whether to trust other people. I think maybe I would like to see a little bit of change there, but that's, that's unrealistic. I think you might be stuck with what in a good way for you, but you come across as trustworthy and that's, you know, going to help you uh, in your business. But I, I, where I think the problem is, is when this starts to be a part of the way that the legal system is finding facts or the way it's pushing outward and causing settlements to happen, which really is just based on, well, somebody can perform credibility, right? And often they can perform it because of the circumstances in which they were raised or the school they went to or whatever it is. 
Um, it's a lot of things that perpetuate uh, inequality and other problems in our society. So I, I think it's pretty serious when it's happening in the legal system itself. Well, it sounds like it's a little bit of a chicken and egg type of situation in that is society going to change so that accepted norms of what people deem to be trustworthiness evolve so that people just generally understand that there's cultural differences and that somebody who's acting in a certain way, you know, may very well be telling the truth. And 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 so that becomes more common and then the legal system will change or do you do you have more confidence that uh, you mentioned like jury instructions that you know do you think it'll be more common for judges to give jury instructions based on scientific studies and and admonish them that they really need to listen to the content of testimony rather than their gut as to whether a particular witness is or isn't telling the truth based on nonverbal cues. What do you have more confidence will happen first? Uh, (laughs) That's a hard question. I mean, I think you're right to call it a bit of a chicken and an egg problem. I do think the law has the ability to push some cultural change. I think that's one of the coolest things about our jury system is that you come in there and you watch a video, you know, in a lot of jurisdictions telling you, you know, here's your duty as a juror and, you know, this is so important. And it's, you kind of get educated through that process about the legal system and you, it hopefully gives the legal system more legitimacy, et cetera. So I actually think that's a great moment to do a little bit of credibility education and maybe send those jurors back out into their communities with a little bit of a question mark about, well, maybe I shouldn't rely on these kind of my gut stereotypes about lying and truthfulness. Maybe that's not the greatest, the most accurate way of doing this. So, you know, I guess I would go with the law changing, although, you know, cultural change would be great as well. Um, and there's, there's some really great books out there now. I'm, I'm probably not, not I'm nerdy and I think they're really cool to read and probably your audience is similar, but, you know, kind of talking, bringing this, these ideas a little bit more to popular audience. So you never know. So one of those is uh, called Face Value by Alexander Todorov. I, I recommend it. An easy read, really interesting book. Okay. Now, uh, you know, I just want to apologize to my audience to the extent that they interpreted that, that you called them nerdy. Ah, uh, Phil, why do you look so sad? Well, does she mean that everybody associated with the podcast is nerdy? Well, even the guy who does the intro. Phil, I don't think she meant it that way. And besides, with your velvety voice, I'm sure it's only a matter of time before you catch on with a different podcast that's a little less nerdy. Oh, well, thanks, Steve. (laughs) Okay, but for now, let's sit tight till our grand finale, okay? And as for Julia... I think it's fair to say that if somebody's listening to this as opposed to uh, binge-watching Tiger King, they, uh, they might be more interested in the Todorov uh, book. So, uh, you know, th- thanks for that plug. Well, look, I- I'm going to end this part of the discussion on scale of 1 to 10. Obviously, coronavirus 
presents this perfect storm of an opportunity to reevaluate how important it is to have witnesses be unmasked. And there's a lot of cultural headwinds. There's a lot of precedent and entrenchment in the law. So one to 10, how confident are you that we're going to take advantage of this opportunity and during this COVID era, reevaluate masks and the importance of nonverbal cues? I would say overall, I'm probably a three. I'm a little bit of a pessimist about this. But, you know, maybe in some jurisdictions where they really are going to enforce the mask mandate in courtrooms and and get a robust number of trials going again, yeah, I might, I might inch up to a five or a six. Okay. Well, you know, maybe we'll do a follow-up down the road. I started off by talking about Zorro. And I'll I'll pivot to Don Quixote because my feeling is three three may even be at least in the immediate short term on the uh, the optimistic side. So I, I I think you might be chasing windmills for a little bit, but you know there, there there's nothing wrong with being a leader on this. And you know I think that that that's a segue. As a mediator, I enjoy doing all types of cases, but my litigation career was doing complex cases, a lot of insurance coverage cases where settlement negotiations involved having models and trying to predict the future and and, in valuing a case. So I ran across another one of your articles, which I'd also suggest that you're a little bit chasing windmills a little bit here, uh, a simple theory of complex valuation. And as, as an initial matter, I think you point out something that is painfully true, and that is our entire judicial system is not very good once it becomes apparent that they need to analyze math and complex models. I just yesterday, like I said, I, I 10 hours, that was just a, a relatively straightforward divorce matter, and we got to uh, a child support issue, and I caucused back and forth, and within... 10 minutes of hearing it in the other room, I heard for the second time in the mediation, a lawyer going through the different rules for how you calculate child support and telling me, I'm a lawyer because I hate math. And, (laughs) you know, it's funny because my career has kind of taken an arc because I, I started out at a large law firm. And when I started just like many young lawyers, you're, you're learning how to do things. So uh, I was given different tasks. But the first time that we got to a, uh, look, we're going to go to mediation and we're going to have a settlement conference. And I was asked to you know, analyze the law and present the, the paper to the mediator. And, and obviously more experienced people looked at it and, and changed some things and helped me out. But we wound up getting to a pretty, in my mind, basic view of how the probability should be calculated in terms of explaining to both our client and the mediator. And it was an awkward situation because somebody who was a much more brilliant attorney than I was, who had much more experience in trying these types of cases and arguing these cases for summary judgment, just flat out didn't understand some of the probability involved. And, you know, it was the first kind of tension in my, he explained something to me and I'm looking at him and he goes, you know, I know this is hard, you know, but we've done this a lot. And I'm like, you know, on this one issue, you're just not correct mathematically. And ever since then, 
for better or worse in my career, whether it was my case or not, when it came time for one of my partners to send a settlement analysis to a client or to a mediator, I always was the one who had to review it one last time to make sure that the math was right. But I, I mean, to me, it, it's just a truism in our system. Judges, attorneys, not all of them, but a lot of them just really don't want to consider math, and that makes it difficult for complex valuations. So, so your, your paper talks about things that, that we can do, but why don't you, so we're on the same page, kind of tell me what, what a complex valuation entails. Yeah, so you kind of already described it. Our, our, I wrote that paper with a co-author, Anthony Casey at the University of Chicago um, Law School. Anyway, we were, we were sort of talking about these situations where there are different models for how to value something where nobody really, you can't test what the value is. Like it's something, it's an asset that needs to be disposed of in bankruptcy, but it doesn't have a market value because it, you know, hasn't been sold in a long time or it, it can't be sold or something for tax purposes. So it's, it's really like trying to approximate a value when you don't know the value because it's not something that has changed hands in a time when you could actually say, oh, well, we just sold that yesterday for this amount. So that's, that's what we were talking about, but it, it, it's really anytime you have to value something that you can't nail it down. You can't say like, I go to the store and that chair costs $10. It gets more complicated than that. Sure. And it sounds like you, you and your co-author had a, a, a pet peeve in the sense of, I guess the way I would describe it is, I think you're complaining that a lot of judges and courts act like mediators or arbitrators because they feel they, you know, they're presented with the opinions of two experts, both of whom are probably more qualified to analyze the valuation issue before the court. And maybe because they don't feel comfortable picking, they come up with a way to split the baby. Yes. I'd not, I mean, pet peeve is, I don't know. I mean, there's a there's a lot of literature about this splitting the baby phenomenon and and you know how it's problematic because what happens is as probably your listeners know that gives an incentive to each side to bring the highest possible valuation or the lowest possible valuation because what they expect the judge to do is go somewhere in the middle. So the higher or lower they can get their number, better the outcome for them in the end which kind of gets us away from the whole idea that we're actually finding the value of the thing. So that it's, you know, it's a problem uh, for a number of legal scholars, but also judges and practitioners in the area have, have tried to, to grapple with in various ways. Well, yeah, I think compared to the first topic, I think you're right. I think there's more people out there who have suggested tweaking the system because of what you call the theater of experts, then perhaps there are people calling for a change of the system on masks. But that doesn't mean that there's been a coalescence around any particular idea. And I think you and your co-author you know, really come down to encouraging parties by using the burden of proof to 
come up with more reasonable alternatives for the court akin to baseball arbitration. And for those of you who don't know, baseball arbitration encourages both sides to be relatively reasonable because the arbitrator in that context cannot split the baby. The arbitrator can't come up with his or her own number. The arbitrator can only choose between the two alternatives. So generally, I think people have found that when the party submitting a proposal knows that it's either my proposal or the other proposal, it puts incentives on the party that aren't there in the traditional courtroom situation to come up with a number themselves closer to the middle. Uh, is, did I describe that accurately? It definitely. That was, that was great. And that's exactly what we're trying to argue, which is that actually fact finders, they, it judges have to base their findings on the evidence. And when you have a valuation, when it's, if they're splitting the baby, there's not actually a mathematical model in the evidence that produces that valuation. There's not actually evidence for the valuation that the judge is selecting. And, you know, we have sort of a long argument about why to back up that claim, but um, that's the basic claim. And so judges should just, if they don't like, if they, you know, they're not persuaded by the valuations, they should use the burden of proof to dispose of the case rather than splitting the baby, which will then incentivize the parties to bring more reasonable valuations that are closer, that they can really tightly justify as against the other side's valuation. And then the judge is going to have two, hopefully, more reasonable numbers to work with and, you know, reasonable models and will be able to come to a decision between between the two. So that was, that's basically our argument in a nutshell, which does make it much more similar to baseball arbitration. There's parts of it that I, you know, I absolutely agree with, and I think baseball arbitration works for the reasons that you say. I guess my one question that comes up with, with that is, I'm sure you know, when you start negotiations, you know, non-baseball arbitration, just your run-of-the-mill, you know, plaintiff comes up with uh, a huge demand, defendant saying, well, we're going to win, so it's a cost of defense, you know, settlement. And obviously the goal as a mediator is to see if the parties are going to be willing to take a number in between them. And so I've seen cases where the initial demands, you know, are orders of magnitude above what that party ultimately is willing to take. And I think that's the type of behavior, especially if they submit an expert report to the court on that, that leads to baby splitting. But I guess we're painting with a broad brush in that I don't think it's mutually exclusive to note that there's incentives for the parties in a non-baseball arbitration setting and in the court to present, I guess, an extreme version of their model to come to a value. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not acceptable. You know, I've seen plenty of cases in which the sides were way off, 
but it wasn't necessarily because their both models were not grounded in reality. It was because there was some significant arguments over the assumptions. And it seems to me in that case, even if we didn't have a system that forced them to come closer, if we had a system in which in the court it was a little bit more, more all or nothing, it would force them to reevaluate those assumptions. Because some of the things that we're talking about, like you said, in bankruptcy, how are you going to value what a stock would or wouldn't have been worth when there was never a perfect market, there was never perfect information. So now we're making hypothetical assumptions. And, you know, it just seems to me that the reason that there's a variance between what one side wants and the other isn't always because their model is complete malarkey. It, it's just that they have different assumptions. Or, or, or am I looking at that incorrectly? I'm not, no. say, I'm not saying that it doesn't yeah. happen that way, but it's... It, it strikes me as the courts are probably ill-suited to figure out whether it's just complete puffery or whether there's one or two assumptions that are the real difference that drive the difference. You're making a good point, which is, I mean, part of why these are complex valuations is that it's complicated and, you know, choosing the comparables and there are a lot of choices that go into the even if, you know, you're using an accepted model, but then you have, there are a lot of decisions and it might be that there's just genuine disagreement about what's the right comparable or some other totally uncertain piece of information. So I think we're not saying that the experts should come to the same conclusion, but rather that actually we have, we have doctrine that says, you know, judges have to base their decision on the evidence. Splitting the baby doesn't do that why don't we, you know, demand that these models do a better job? And But then there will still be a role for the judge, right? There will still be a role for the, the sides to argue, you know, like my my choices, my assumptions that go into this model are the better assumptions, and here's why. Or even I'm using this model as opposed to that model, and here's why, and I'm making a better choice. But our theory is that, if that's what's going on, you're going to get better information and better modeling, but it, not that it will eliminate difficult decisions for judges. So, you know, kind of does bring us back to the problem you started with, which is judges are, aren't great at this. I've heard a million times teaching law school, like, oh, I don't want to, I'm scared of numbers, you know, from my students. So it's not just, you know, it's, it's, it's around the profession. So, you know, that's a separate <laughs> That's a separate issue, and there are actually some really cool work coming out from colleagues of other legal scholars kind of trying to think about how can we how can we deal with that? You know, can we give judges access to, like, their own pool of expertise that they can call on when they have difficult decisions like this? Or are there other ways to deal with this? Maybe we should ask hearings that are just about methodology before we even go through with it, like pre-discovery, because sometimes like your your model, whatever method you're going to use, that's going to affect what discovery you need. So that would kind of sort some things out on the front end. So anyway, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there about that. It's, and oh, and it, I, I do agree that, yeah. No, it's, it, there's, it, there's lots of judgment involved. Yeah. Well, and it's fascinating because I think sometimes maybe 
even there's unintended consequences in some ways. I mean, we know that most cases, I mean, I guess as a mediator now, I can uh, get on a soapbox and say this, most cases settle. And, you know, one of the reasons that they settle is I can go into a room and tell you, look, I think your expert is spot on. I think the methodology is fine. But you know what? That final number, boy, that seems a lot. And I think a judge who doesn't necessarily understand it all and looks at a competing model that between you and me, I think has a lot of flaws, but you face a ton of litigation risk that the judge might even go for the other model or come up with some other number. So let's here today try to figure out whether there's a number you can live with that you're controlling as opposed to letting the the judge deal with it. And so that's baked into my presentation and my efforts to help people settle the fact that there is so much randomness coming out of courts that they should be scared of that randomness and be willing to avoid the expense and time of trial only to get a random outcome. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think that would would completely change if we had less of this. In fact, I think it might help mediators kind of push the sides to, to set. I mean, maybe not, but I don't think it changes the fact that there's still uncertainty and there's now also maybe there's a bigger upside or bigger downside because you can't say, well, maybe the judge will split the baby. Rather, it's like if the judge doesn't like our model and it looks high or it looks whatever, the other one might prevail. But I, I hope, though, that it w- might take away part of your argument, which is, well, we have a great model and we can really defend it. I would hope that, that it would strengthen the position of those litigants if we had a change like this. Well, sure. And I think I think you might have used streets. I'll use time of day to demonstrate this because I think it, it shows a little bit of the absurdity. You know, if witness A says, I saw the accident and it, I looked at my watch right when it happened. It happened at 10 a.m. And witness B says, I saw the accident from the other corner. I looked at my watch. It was noon. Appellate courts don't affirm courts that say, the accident happened at 11. We're going to split that baby right? Because there's the notion that that, that's an objective fact, but we treat what is the result of expert testimony differently. And in that context, you know, what you're suggesting and many other people have is too often the courts get affirmed for saying, we're going to go with 11 o'clock. Yeah, that's exactly right. I know your your time is limited. I, I don't know whether you had ever listen to a a full podcast, but one of the things that I do, and so I invite you or anybody listening to go to my website, showwolfmediation.com, under Resolution Roulette, I have a version of the Monty Hall game, and it is a game that illustrates the difficulty of probability, the difficulty that people have in valuing cases. And I tend to present this because I try to tell people in the context of mediation who seem absolutely certain with their their model or valuation that they might not be considering all factors and they face litigation risk that even if they're right, the judge or jury might not understand them. So I'm not going to subject you to that, but it, it, it's a similar concept to one of the 
issues that you point out about our system right now in terms of uh, valuing uh, complex cases. Yeah. So, well, this yeah. has been an absolute pleasure. I very much appreciate you uh, willing to come on the podcast. A- any closing thoughts for the nerdy audience that uh, you know you uh, suggested might be listening? No, nothing, nothing deep. Just I'm, I'm really glad to be able to speak to this audience because I try, I really try to find ways to connect with practitioners and not just be in my little law professor bubble. So, you know, if anyone listening has any thoughts, you can find my my email on my website at UConn Julia Simon Kerr, um, and I I certainly welcome hearing from you. Well, excellent. And as I said early in the podcast, uh, I'm starting to get a little bit more feedback on on episodes. Uh, I, I'd like to think I've come a long way, but at least we've improved over the first couple episodes uh, in terms of production and uh, coming up with interesting ideas for uh, our audience. So if you if you have any thoughts or comments, uh, please go to uh, showwolfmediation.com. Let me know. Thank you very much for listening. And so for today, we'll close the door. We'll keep it open just a little bit to continue our discussions about uh, how COVID's impacting uh, the legal industry, how courts are responding, how mediators are responding. And till then, thank you very much. This closes the door on Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. Please join us next time where Steve will discuss with a new guest topics related to mediation, negotiation, and resolution. Thank you for listening.